This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The early years of settlement in the colony of New South Wales were chaotic and challenging. Meg Keneally's new novel, The Wreck, provides us with a little insight into the background of the time both in England and in the recently established colony. So Meg, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you for having me. You begin with the Peterloo Massacre. Mm -hmm. These are troublesome times in England. They are. They are very troublesome times. It's not long after the Napoleonic Wars. And the French Revolution, too, is still within living memory. Uh, And the British decided that they wanted to protect British merchants by keeping out foreign grain. Only problem with that was a lot of people were starving. It was the Industrial Revolution. They were losing their incomes. They were working in just deplorable conditions in cotton mills and so forth. No one had the vote unless they were male and a landowner and people were really, really, really angry. People were starving. Yes. Uh, the streets. That's how bad it was. Yes. And there was conspiracy and rebellion in yes. the air. And what fascinates me are your references to Thomas Spence and yes. some of his ideas would even be applicable for our current day situations. Yes, well, probably the most famous radical writer of the period was Thomas Paine, who wrote The Rights of Man. But Spence was Paine on steroids. Spence was very much a uh, a revolutionary, really felt that the only way forward was some sort of catastrophic change. Well, he talks about suffrage to begin with, but Mm. here's the interesting one, a social guarantee, like JobKeeper, perhaps? Yes. Exactly, exactly. And there was no social guarantees of any sort at that time. Uh, Looking into the conditions in cotton mills in Manchester, um, I learned about these young kids called mule scavengers and they would scurry underneath the spinning mules to remove the bits of cotton that had gotten caught in the works. But because there was no such thing as OH&S and because the factory owners didn't want to halt production for anything they would keep the machines running as these kids were under there and people would lose fingers and hands and wind up on the street Uh, these are six seven year old kids well our hero is sarah mccaffrey uh, involved in these situations in england she has lost both her parents at the peterloo massacre her brother is executed for rebellion against the crown And she finds herself on a ship bound for the new colony of New South Wales because you've got a lot of convicts and prisoners and criminals who've been arguing against the system in England. Well, just throw them onto Australia. But the ship is called the Serpent and it's wrecked. The name of the ship is actually linked to a notion of rebellion that you develop and the Aruberus. How do you pronounce it? Aruberus? I believe it's Aruberus. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's one of those questions that you get a different answer depending on who you ask. So I hope I haven't mispronounced it. But my understanding is it's a robberous, which is a symbol which people would, while they might not know the name, they will have seen the symbol. It's a snake eating its own tail. And it's a symbol of destruction and renewal. And what people like Spence wanted to do and what my characters want to do in the book is tear the place down and start again. So that was why I chose that particular symbol for my fictional revolutionaries. Of course, this ship gets wrecked coming into uh, Sydney Harbour and uh, Sarah McCaffrey is the only survivor. But what's interesting for me then 
is how close was this new colony in New South Wales to rebellion? Because she comes bringing the seeds of rebellion with her. Mm. And at around the same time, many other people came. Of course, we tend to focus on the people who committed survival crimes, for example, like theft. But there were a lot of dissidents who came to Australia in the belly of convict ships as well, both then and later, including people involved in the Cato Street conspiracy, which I uh, fictionalise in the uh, in the book. So there was a transplantation of this very, at the time, was considered a very radical way of thinking that, you know, perhaps even women could vote. What a shock. Or, or or men who didn't own land. Can you imagine what society coming to? So there were chunterings out here, definitely, and a feeling among some that this was the opportunity to make the world anew. But here we go again with Australia's history because the setting, which is around 1820, you had the Rum Rebellion 10 years before that. Yes, where the actual servicemen and ruling class <laughs> were actually rebelling because they were after property and, um, you know, advancement in their own life. Yeah. William Bly doesn't have a really good record with rebellions and mutinies, does he? Uh, he needs yeah. a lot more research done on him in terms of the psychological temperament that mm. saw him involved in so many of, of these things. But this is just after Bly has left and they're trying to reorder the new colony. Yes, this is, this is actually in the late years of uh, Macquarie's um, administration and he was a bit more progressive than Bly and he didn't think much of Bly either. Um, not many people did, but as you say, uh, the Rum Rebellion was Australia's only so far military coup and there was, I think, among some, a sense that this is a new place where the old rules might not necessarily apply. And there were some people who really wanted to sort of play with that and tweak it and see what they could create that was better than what they'd left behind. Well, that's interesting because you then have Mrs Thistle. So mm -hmm. Sarah meets Mrs Thistle, who's actually running a thriving business. Yes. How is she able to do this? Well, that's one of the fascinating things about the period of early colonisation. There were a lot of people who came out as convicts, they served their sentence, they got land grants and they were able to build lives here that they never could have built in England. And I'm not saying it was easy by any stretch of the imagination, but you had people like Mary Reby, who was the inspiration for Molly Thistle. And uh, if, if anyone looks on their $20 note, they'll see a picture of her and she looks all grandmotherly and sweet, but uh, this was a formidable woman. Uh, she um, she married. She was transported at age 14 for stealing a horse. She married out here, and when her husband died, she built his business into one of the most significant trade and real estate empires uh, in Australia. And she could buy and sell most people here, with the possible exception of the MacArthur's maybe. But, you know, I was very interested in exploring her as a fictional character because I've always been fascinated by what it would have taken to become such a prominent figure as both a woman and a former convict. Because what you then get is this interplay between the notion of how do we form a new society through rebellion or through, well, hard work is one way, but even Mrs Thistle 
it came about because of opportunity rather than a revolution sort of thing. Yes. This is what I wanted to play with, the tension between these two approaches to changing the world. And that world certainly did need changing. And the title of the book, The Wreck, refers to the society as much as to the shipwreck. And my main character, Sarah, starts off as essentially a terrorist. She's involved in a plot to behead cabinet ministers and throughout the course of the book she comes around to a different way of thinking about how to bring about change and the enabler for that is molly thistle who says to her at one point something like why do you want to storm the barricades when you can buy them and dismantle them at your leisure (laughs) but it begs the question then as to the foundation of australia the altruism uh, that we have the fact that convicts who were once rejects actually managed to create something for themselves. The society of the day wouldn't necessarily have looked on that favourably back in England. No, not not in the slightest. In fact, there was a fellow called James Moody who was a pastoralist out here and he returned to England in disgust and high dudgeon that convicts were allowed to actually make good lives out here. And he wrote a book called The Felonry of New South Wales. He actually invented the word felonry. And in it, he railed against this appalling situation where people were able to actually have good lives after they'd served their sentence. And he said people are committing crimes just to get sent to New South Wales. Now, I don't know how true that is, um, but uh, with all of the attendant dangers, but he was he was appalled that what was supposed to be a punishment for many people turned out to be in some ways uh, a positive thing. But when you look then at the beginning of your book, The Peterloo Massacre, mm. the suffering of the people... Mm. One would then have to think, okay, going to Australia at least provided you with an opportunity to escape the suffering. I don't agree with Moody. I don't think many people deliberately committed crimes to get uh, sent out here. But certainly once they were, they did find that there was a little bit more room to move. People from the cities, for example, found that they could get a land grant. Um, And all of a sudden they had, I mean, land was tremendously important, not only for economic reasons, but also for symbolic ones. Because they'd come from a society where if you had land, you owned the world, basically. Uh, So for them to even get a small little patch of land was quite extraordinary. Well, ownership of land gave you Mm. uh, entitlement to vote and all of these sorts of things. So you were actually progressing in society. You had a base that you could uh, work from. And uh, I don't believe landowners in uh, convict land, ex-former convict landowners in Sydney were able to vote. uh, But um, it did have that symbolic significance because in England, it was only through owning land that you could have any say at all into what society looked like. These sorts of novels are fascinating in terms of the insight they provide into early Australia, which we really do not know enough about. And unfortunately, Meg, we're actually going to have to end the interview there. It's a fascinating look into early Australia, the ideas that existed at the time and Mm. how our our heroine here, Sarah McCaffrey, is able to advance uh, in society. But it does beg the question then of, yes, uh, how close we were to rebellion, the seeds of rebellion are Mm -hmm. still existing in society today, and the means by which we foment change and 
are able to develop. So the book is called The Wreck. Meg Keneally is the author. It's from Echo Publishing. Thank you very much, Meg, for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, David. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. Do you know a Polly? There's next door's dog called Polly and Polly put the kettle on. Or if you're into home improvements, there's Polly Filler. Polly is also the name of Paul Dalgano's book. Welcome, Paul. Hi there, Chan. Polly has a completely different meaning in your book. What does your Polly refer to? Um, that's quite a good question because I think it actually has different meanings on the book depending on how you read it. But um, the, the main one is polyamory. So um, poly being short for polyamory among among people who use that term. And polyamory is more than one relationship in a marriage. And this marriage, this marriage, we start off with Chris and Sarah Flood. Why have they decided that this is the way for them? So Chris and Sarah Flood have been married for quite a long time. They've been together about 15 years. And um, especially since kids came along, which is about eight years in their case, they um, have stopped having sex um, almost entirely. They, they occasionally have sex, but not that much, which um, is more of an issue for Chris, the husband, than it is for Sarah. And as, as a kind of... Um, in some ways, as a last resort, they decide between them that they're going to open up their marriage to, um, in a way, try and kickstart the marriage in some ways to um, bring new people in and to hopefully reinvigorate them both um, and somehow bring them closer. As it says in the book, the mechanics are vague, but um, it's, it's a bit of a vague last-ditch attempt to keep their marriage going. Well, Chris is our narrator, so we, we hear from him that he's had years of coochie-coo baby raising and no sex, and that Sarah's sexual reawakening would be good for her, but more importantly, it would be good for me. So it was music, dancing and drugs that initially got Chris and Sarah together. But after all these years, Chris asks his younger friend, Zach, to help him with getting the drugs. Tell us a bit about Zach. Zach is a 22-year-old. Um, he's the son of a world-renowned lyricist, so he tells us, and he's something of a child prodigy. He comes from Uruguay. doesn't sound like he's from Uruguay, but he basically was left in Australia by his mother, who was here working when he was about 13 years old. And ever since then, he's grown up in Perth with his half-brother. And... Basically, he makes a big deal out of the fact he only works for luxury brands. He's a very stylish young man. And um, he's attracted to Chris and Sarah and their children because in them, what, what he kind of tells them is he sees a normal family in them, even, even though the family is going through a, a less than normal time. But he, he is attracted to that idea of family, having grown up with, by his own admission, um, abandonment issues from, from being left by his mum. So it's through Zach and the necessity to get some drugs that Chris meets Biddy. Oh, Biddy. So tell us who she is. Uh, yeah, so uh, Biddy Honig is, um, she, wor she works at the Arts Centre. She's a, she works in marketing for Melbourne Arts Centre. She's a very vivacious character 
person. She, um, in addition to her work, she's a performer, so she puts on one-woman shows, uh, which she writes herself. She plays piano, she sings a lot, and uh, she's the woman that Chris falls in love with quite heavily in the book. So whereas for um, Sarah, her experience of polyamory is, is, um, is essentially seeing lots of different people over, over the period of the book, in Chris's case, he falls hook, line and sinker for, for Biddy. The childcare proves a problem, however. Zach is more than willing to help, so they grat gratefully hand over the school pickup and babysitting duties to him. He seems to be always starting new impressive jobs, and very much in contrast to Chris's job. What's that? Um, so Chris works in a um, kind of mid-level job at the State Library, and he is pretty much unmotivated. So I, I think Chris in general is a, is a slightly uh, complex and confusing character. So he, he has this job. It's not his dream job, but at the same time, he does love books. He loves being around reading. And as he says, um, on the periphery of the Melbourne art scene, he, he kind of enjoys that aspect of his life. But he's, he's unmotivated at the start of the book. And as his... Um, as his social life, as his personal life takes on ever more challenging and dramatic and sleep-deprived sleep dimensions, he essentially coasts through work for months on end, deliberately avoiding every single meeting, uh, avoiding answering emails, not doing presentations that are due, and uh, feeling pretty surprised that no nobody else notices. Um, which I have to say, I, I don't think would be the case in the actual State Library at all. I don't, um, but, I yeah. don't either. Although he calls it a clacky, you know, he just does clacky stuff. And, uh, oh, anyway. So, in contrast, Zach, who's able to sell them a cheap tag, Hulia watches, Zach, who can copy signatures perfectly for school excursions, and Zach, who knows more about what's going on in Sarah's life than Chris does. And Zach, the kids love him babysitting them. Their new life of Polly Marie features late nights, love affairs and rotating childcare duties. This is what Chris would ideally want for Sarah. Now, I'm going to get Paul Delgano to read from page 185. It's only a snippet, but you get to sort of see just how self-interested Chris is. Okay, so this is Chris. Still... I couldn't help hoping she would hit the jackpot and swipe right on someone with obscene wealth and impeccable table manners, a condom and latex gloves junkie whose greatest ambition was to date a married woman while providing an unrelated financial stipend for her long-suffering hubby and kids. Honestly, he's, he really is self-interested, isn't he? Anyway, Chris is in love with Biddy and he's constantly comparing himself to Sarah's new men invading her phones, invading her Facebook, doing GPS searches on her. So his own masculinity is in crisis. Is all of this making Chris happy? Well, I, th I think um, it's interesting that you talk about um, masculinity in crisis, Jen, because I think that's a theme that comes through um, very strongly in the book, not, not just through Chris, although he's probably the, the lightning rod for most of these thoughts. And um, obviously, like all of us, he, he wants to be happy. But as you said there, he, he 
behaves in very morally questionable ways in, in relation to his wife. And a lot of these ways come around um, as a result of Chris really wanting to control things, in, including his wife. So his, his journey in the book, and I, I would argue perhaps a, a, a lot of journeys, a, a lot of men's journeys in, in the real world too, is really trying to stop controlling things, and in particular trying to stop controlling uh, the people around us and the people we're in relationships with. So, um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Chris is happy, but then again, I wouldn't, I mean, there are not that many people in the world you would say are unambiguously happy all of the time. I mean, he, he has his ups and downs, but um, yeah, he, he, he aspires to be happy like the rest of us. Actually, you've got a number of the male characters in the book with mental issues. Yeah, I, I've, I was really moved by something. Um, I, I mean, I, I have uh, friends who have mental health issues and I've had mental health issues. And I was really moved by something I read a couple of years ago. Um, so it was a, a Cochrane report, which, which is a, it's, a, it's a thing that's done regularly where lots and lots of different scientific papers are drawn together to find a consensus between lots of different studies. And in this case, it was um, around male suicide, which is, is you know, it happens in very alarming numbers. And the, the number one cause or influencing factor in male suicide wasn't the things that we might expect. So I don't even know what they would be, but let's say, you know, um, a, a, a really rough time financially or drug use or any number of things. It was actually self-reliance. So the idea being that um, men seemingly in greater numbers have this idea of self-reliance, that they're going to be okay, that bearing it and not complaining and, and giving the impression of being able to handle things is actually the number one, according to this study, the number one factor contributing to male suicide, which I found fascinating and and it also really resonated with me so um that, that that's definitely one of the things feeding into the book the the idea the, the myth uh, that that uh, we as men live with that we're kind of going okay and our inability to actually express what's going on uh, the, the fact we don't have the tools to express that actually this could be a good time for, for me to ask you to read from page 162 um, so this is actually uh, the, the situation here is Chris is um, in bed. It's his birthday and for, for weeks he's actually been saying he needs some time alone. So, a bit of a surprise. Sarah turned to face me, stroked my hand. I've taken the day off work too. Oh, punch. I could punch the bed, punch my face. What's wrong? Oliver and Sophie whispering to each other their bare feet padding to the kitchen. I'm sorry, I just really wanted some time alone. I've been saying that for weeks. I'm actually a bit worried about myself. Biddy and I had discussed it at length. At first, she'd said the usual, oh, poor Chris, everyone loves him and he just can't cope, before the penny had dropped that, yes, exactly that, I was struggling to cope with so much love. Sarah looked past my face at the wall, took her hand from mine. Yeah, okay, I can do other things. I just thought you might want to grab a coffee or get breakfast together somewhere. I did, but that'd take a couple of hours and I've got to get the kids from school later. 
I thought it would be good for us to spend some time together, you know, break breadsticks, reconnect. I do miss you, you know. Clinking from the kitchen, bowls and plates being chipped. That was all I wanted, really, to reconnect with Sarah, to be with Biddy, for us to be a happy little polycule, for the kids to be okay. But the strain of trying to make that happen, the fear of shortchanging everyone, robbing, my, robbing time from myself to give to others. Sarah threw back the covers, put on her dressing gown, stopped at the door. I'll be at home anyway if you change your mind. Mm. Yeah. Look, the heaviness of the writing that you, you know, that, that sounds like Chris's anxiety, is lifted so much by the conversations he often has with himself while he's conversing with somebody else. Uh, you know, example I can think of is when he's trying to comb his daughter's hair and he's completely think about something else, but this short little punchy dialogue that you're able to put in. Have you been writing scripts or something? Is that how you get this 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 punchy dialogue? Um, I've, I've actually, it's, it's funny you ask that and it's a good question, but I mean, I haven't been writing scripts to answer your question very directly, but one of the biggest new tools in this book was dialogue. So it's something in uh, all my years of journalism and even my, my previous book, dialogue wasn't really a, a major focus for me. So I, I feel I've had to learn that from the ground up and. So, so it has been a process of about three years of trying to do dialogue, reading it out, seeing if it sounded, seeing if it sounded right, trying to work with the ambiguities that you just get in, um, in, in all of the chat we all have each each day. Yep. Well, I think he succeeded. But <laughs> I've got to ask you this: with all the names that you can choose, you have both Sarah and Biddy's father both called Chris. So what was the mm. for that? <laughs> same name, same desires? Um, I, I'm really, yeah, I don't know exactly, but um, I, I think Chris is an incredibly common name uh, in Melbourne for, for guys of a certain age. And um, for, for that reason, that's, that's why Chris, the main character, is called that. But I, I'm just fascinated in patterns and names. So um, I have my, my uh, aunties, so my dad's sisters, they're triplets, and they, they all married men called Leslie. So I think that's just a personal quirk that I'm, I'm fascinated by, by those patterns. I thought there might have been a reason for it. Look, I've learned a lot about polymery uh, and vocab. I never would have thought I could read. There's challenges of ethical non-monogamy and could be a double monogamous bind and the advantages of couple privilege. Yeah. Well, Polly is a funny and moving story of a man who wants it all in the normality of a not-so-normal modern family. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Jan. Thank you. Well, that was Paul Delgano, and we forgot to mention the twist at the end. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. I look more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.